All right. That should have been enough time to meet everyone. You can go ahead and take your seats. Well, good morning, church. My name's Samantha, in case it's been a minute. I've been gone for the past month, and uh, it is really good to be back with you. Although, I will admit, it was difficult to leave sweatshirt weather in Colorado and our tiny COVID-free bubble up in the mountains and return to the realities of August in Austin, 2021. Will and I run a summer theater program in a little mountain town outside of Rocky Mountain National Park called Grand Lake. And it's a no-stoplight town with a main street about three blocks long. And in the summer, it attracts all kinds of tourists to come play in the mountains and the lake. And the main drag there is just crawling with barefoot kids and everyone has ice cream and there's bingo run by the Rotary Club in the park. It's very idyllic. So on my last day there, I was very uncomfortable when I witnessed a huge altercation in the middle of the street in the afternoon. The guy in, front, uh, the, guy in the car in front of me, and spoiler, both people in the fight were men, uh, shouted that the car in front of him was driving too slow, prompting the guy in that car to stop in the middle of the street, open his door, come back and scream, and I mean scream, at the guy behind him for driving too close. I was actually able to uh, snap a picture of it, which might help give you a sense. So, yeah, if we could hold that up there for a second. So, yeah, you can see me uh, behind the too close car, behind the too slow car. And then just for reference, there's the mountains and the lake and ice cream and families and old people. Uh, So much ice cream. But you can see the absurdity of this level of fury in this setting. And so they're yelling a lot of words that I can't repeat here. And the other guy gets out of his car, and I actually thought they were going to hit each other. And there's tons of families now watching. But after a few minutes, they settled on middle fingers and slammed their doors and got back in the car. And I'm right behind them, just appalled that on a Sunday afternoon in a vacation town, these two adult men can be so quickly moved to rage over too slow or too close driving. And part of why I'm appalled is because I never get angry. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't. It's not spiritual. Um, So I didn't get angry when I was behind a too slow car and in front of a too close car the very next day on our road trip home. I'm certainly not angry about coming home to a city in stage five. I don't get angry about unvaccinated people or noses hanging outside of masks or the prospect of sending my husband back to teach another year of school like the last one. I don't get angry about COVID stuff at all. I'm obviously not angry about politics ever or Christians whom I'd rather not call themselves that. Never angry with my family, my work, or someone chewing too loudly. And of course, I never get angry about someone's failure to intuit what I need without me having to tell them. I mean, that would be absurd. So I was surprised when I came to the assigned reading for this morning in Ephesians to find a verse that I thought I was nailing included a commandment that I'd never been taught. The part of Ephesians 4.26 that I knew reads, do not let the sun go down on your anger. And maybe you've heard this, like I did in premarital counseling, or back in the day as a ploy from your mom to apologize to your sister before bed. But the beginning of the verse reads, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Be angry. Be angry, but do not sin. 
Let's take a look at the whole passage together. So then, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 4:25 to 32. Now there's much that we could pull out of this passage today, but I want to focus the lens on what we are told about anger and its relationship to truth-telling and kindness. If you've been journeying with us the past few weeks, you've heard the deep work that Jason has done into Ephesians, reminding us of the context of these words, a letter from, written by Paul from prison to the church at Ephesus and likely circulated to churches in the surrounding areas. And we've been finding permission, just like Paul, to innovate, to pull forward something ancient through the lens of something current. We can discern from this reading what scholars confirm, that these early church communities were marked by division. And we may also be wise to be a little suspicious of a leader's call for civility, how it preserves the imperialistic interest to keep the people in line. We might also be mindful of how or why our Western tradition clung to anger's bedtime and forgot to memorialize the first two words, be angry. I've never seen that on a sign at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> we bring all of this awareness to our reading of this text as we search for the wisdom that we can carry forward. So the question I've been asking, and it's a question that's vital to our spiritual health as well as our justice work, is this. With so much to be angry about, how do we allow anger to be a source of fuel rather than poison? How do we be angry well? Because as Nietzsche said, beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. It's clear from this text that anger itself is not the sin. That's why Paul can say, be angry and do not sin in the same line. Yet, many of us grew up in homes or churches where the very feeling of anger was unwelcome and we learned it was wrong. We may have been taught that disassociating from anger was a means of taking some spiritual high road, when in fact, our sacred text describes a God often moved to outrage by injustice. So as I've held this scripture alongside what we now know about anger from the fields of psychology and also activism, a common counsel emerges as a, as for a first step in processing and dealing with our anger, and that's simply noticing it. This should go without saying, but all too often, we don't notice our anger until we're already acting on it, and sometimes not even until after that. When we slow down enough to identify the emotion, then we can have the presence of mind to distinguish the nature of our anger. And I'm learning that there are two broad categories that our anger falls into. Writer and activist Sarah Jolina Wolcott cautions us to be mindful of the difference between anger that is ego-based and anger that comes from a place of seeing and seeking to right injustice. Enneagram teacher Russ Hudson marks the contrast in different terms, conscious, necessary anger, and unconscious, unnecessary anger. The first is a response to an injustice or injury that is happening presently, either to me or around me. And then there's the latter variety, 
an unconscious response of frustration from the past triggered by something in the present. For identifying this type, he illustrates, maybe someone is not being what I need them to be for me or seeing something in me that I want them to see. They might be acting in a way that's incompatible with my own unconscious plans for them. They may have the audacity to view a situation differently than the way I want them to see it. These represent some of the possibilities and patterns that are exposed by identifying our unconscious response. And most of our anger is of this nature, where our past is overlaid on our present. But with either type, we do not choose to feel it, and we must not dismiss it, for it has something to teach us, perhaps about the nature of suffering in our world and how we might be a part of healing, or perhaps it might lead to more honest relationships, or we might learn something about ourselves, and the more we become aware of our own patterns, the less power they have to control us. So, whichever kind of anger we identify, how then do we actually be angry as Paul encourages? Maybe you've heard of the rage rooms that have popped up. Uh, they started in Japan, actually, but they've grown in popularity over the last five years in our country. Can't imagine why. And there's one here in Kyle, in fact. So you pay to smash things in like a safe room. You can purchase a glass package, a date night package, or for $800, you can go to town on a brand new car. There are, I know, look it up, it's crazy. Maybe some people here have tried it. Sounds like a fun date night, well. Um, but there are other cheaper ways to act out. Though we should be forewarned that dispensing anger's energy by raising our voice or behaving aggressively doesn't get rid of it. I don't think those men in Grand Lake were more liberated when they got back in their cars after their Main Street shouting match. Paul has quite a list near the end of this section when he says, put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice. These are some of the fruits of ill-expressed anger, fruits that serve only to poison. Maybe your go-to means of acting out your anger is that word wrangling that he uses, spreading it, picking up the phone or opening Facebook until you've got an army of yes-men emboldening your cause. Paul knew, and we do too, that bitterness and wrath and wrangling and slander and malice feed on each other as they embolden us in our self-righteousness and further divide us. Blowing a fuse just leaves everyone stumbling in the dark, and this only causes anger to fester. But so too does repressing. You might also think of this as the, it's fine, strategy. Uh, anyone familiar with this one? I happen to be an expert. Unfortunately, I think all of us it's finers are much worse actors than we think. If you've ever washed the dishes at someone before, they <laughs> probably picked up on your subtext. Anger swallowed and leaked out through sarcasm or impatience will only ricochet inside us until it catches us off guard, sometimes irrationally, potentially wrecking havoc to our relationships. So it seems the anger must go somewhere. Richard Rohr says, anger becomes self-defeating and egocentric when it hangs around too long after we have received its message. Then it distorts the message. This is where anger turns to resentment. And perhaps resentment, a posture of hatred towards another child of God, perhaps this is the real sin. Barbara Brown Taylor calls this arthritis of the spirit. Maybe this is why Paul suggests that anger keep a strict curfew. 
Now, there are those of us who have experienced or maybe are now experiencing the kind of anger that stems from a deep, deep wound. And it would be foolish to imagine that this kind of anger, which is so often a daughter of grief, wouldn't spend the night. If you are walking through this kind of pain, my hope is that you can be present with your anger and not rush it out the door, which will only suppress it. Your work may be to be mindful of when anger begins to possess you, for there will still come a time when it needs to transform. But there are certainly seasons and events where the arc of the forgiveness journey might include many sunsets. Our work with any kind of wound is not to indulge or act out our anger or deny it, but to be present with it, to be angry. Hudson suggests we be present with our anger by taking notice of the physical sensations and patterns that the feeling evokes so that we can be aware of these reactions rather than at the mercy of their effects. Of course, to prepare me for this topic today, the Spirit afforded me a multitude of opportunities to be present with my anger this week. Thank you for that. So I'm beginning to notice that my anger results in tightness in my shoulders and neck, an inability to sit still, a pounding heart I can hear in my throat, and an immediate impulse to start winning others to my side. These physical sensations can lead to sin, as Paul warns, or they can lead us to productive action. Because if we channel it thoughtfully, the bodily momentum anger provides can actually give us courage to initiate a difficult conversation, speak up about something that's not right, and persevere through that insecurity that might typically keep us silent. Anger gets us off the couch. It leads us to more authentic connection and propels us to sacrifice our comfort for those in need. The first part of today's passage begins with Paul's invitation to speak truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. This requires bravery, and we have seen in our great justice leaders throughout history the prophetic anger that leads to truth-telling and lasting change. Spiritual teacher Barbara Holmes calls for a theology of anger that invites us to wake up from the hypnotic influences of unrelenting oppression so that individuals and communities can shake off the shackles of denial, resignation, and nihilism. I think we need a theology of anger, don't you? So here's what I'm wondering. Do you think that maybe the more of our true selves we become, inextricably linked to one another and our divine source, that the source of our anger might also transform? For as Mirabai Starr writes, there is a correlation between the power of our anger and the depth of our love. The more we root ourselves in love, will we find ourselves more often moved to anger by that which separates us from one another, by that which also enrages the heart of God? And the more we root ourselves in a larger story, will we be less impacted by the daily frustrations of imperfect people all traveling the same direction on I-35 at the same time? I hope so. Although unreplaced toilet paper rolls will never not piss me off. Like, we're not going to be perfect. But I do think our irritability meter is a useful barometer for the state of our souls. And maybe as our capacity for love increases, so too will the direction of our anger. This week I came across a hymn entitled, Inspired by Love and Anger. And the writers John Bell and Graham Mall beautifully capture the way that prophetic anger can lead us to good, hard questions. So I've asked Will to read it for us.
inspired by love and anger, disturbed by need and pain, informed of God's own bias, we ask him once again, how long must some folks suffer? How long can few folk mind? How long dare vain self-interest turn prayer and pity blind? From those forever victims of heartless human greed, their cruel plight composes a litany of need. Where are the fruits of justice? Where are the signs of peace? When is the day when prisoners and dreams find their release? From those forever shackled to what their wealth can buy, the fear of lost advantage provoke the bitter cry. Don't query our position. Don't criticize our wealth. Don't mention those exploited by politics and stealth. To God, who through the prophets proclaimed a different age, we offer Earth's indifference, its agony and rage. When will the wrong be righted? When will the kingdom come? When will the world be generous to all instead of some? God asks, who will go for me? Who will extend my reach? And who, when few will listen, will prophesy and preach? And who, when few bid welcome, will offer all they know? And who, when few dare follow, will walk the road I show? Amused in someone's kitchen, asleep in someone's boat, attuned to what the ancients exposed, proclaimed, and wrote, a savior without safety, a tradesman without tools, has come to tip the balance with fishermen and fools. Thank you. I love imagining Paul sitting down to write to a young community swirling with passion and ideas and questions and egos and people who walk too slow or walk too close, sitting right next to it's fine people who are not fine at all, with every selfish reason to keep on dividing at the expense of the organism. I imagine Paul's mind swirling around these ideas of truth and anger and love. Yes, we must speak the truth to one another, he writes, and we will get angry. And anger can lead us toward what's right. And anger can destroy us if it sticks around too long. And truth must not be subsumed by civility. And love is more effective than bitterness. And sometimes we'll still choose bitterness. And we'll need forgiveness. And so will they. I imagine Paul wondering if the church at Ephesus could hold room for the nuance, the complexity, the both and of life lived in community. They might get angry, he may have worried. They make me angry, he may have felt. And still he wrote. And so he wrote. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the permission to feel our feelings all the way through, including the hard ones. Thank you for the ways that you can use anger to move us in the direction of justice and truth-telling. May we be mindful this week of when our anger tips into resentment, when it's overstayed its welcome. And would you continue to teach us to be present with our anger, 
so that we can also be liberated from it and turn it towards productive action. In your name we pray, amen.